Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, this is Krista Today we have with us Michael Farmer. Michael is a former Bain & Company director who set up his own strategy consulting firm and has specialized in helping ad agencies and their clients navigate the changes in the media landscape. Michael is also an author of two books, Madison Avenue Manslaughter and Madison Avenue Makeover. Michael, such a pleasure to have you with us today. Well, Chris, thank you for inviting me and uh I'm very happy to be talking to you about the subjects that we uh, we spoke about earlier, about strategy consulting on the one hand, careers, how they develop, how it got me into the advertising industry, which was a big surprise, and and how it led me to write two books. So uh, I'm happy to submit myself to your questions and let your listeners know a little bit more about my career and uh my interests and and how I got here. So to begin with, let's set the context. Could you share with us how you ended up at BCG, then at Bain, and what was your experience working at those consulting firms and then starting your own firm afterwards? Okay, well, I'm very happy to do that. I'll have to reveal a lot because um, There must be something in the way that I was raised that led me never to have much of a plan for my life. (laughs) I uh, I went to I went to university on a Navy scholarship. My you know, I come from extremely modest background. My parents didn't have any money for education. So I I got a a Navy scholarship, uh, went to university, uh, served five years in the Navy as an officer. And uh, about the time I got out, I was I was married and uh, an English major and uh, a naval officer. And I thought, that's not very good for getting a job. A friend of mine said, why don't you apply to Harvard Business School? And so I applied and got into Harvard Business School oh, a long time ago and um, really enjoyed the case method because it reminded me so much of what it was like to read a novel and to figure out what a novel was all about. You know, what is Mr. Jones's problem? And uh, I had a summer job with McKinsey. Uh, I really enjoyed the work because it was trying to puzzle out what was really going on as a client. And uh, after I graduated, uh, I decided to join the Boston Consulting Group um, in Boston. And uh, and it was just, it met my expectations entirely. I worked there for about four years. I worked in Boston. I worked in Rio de Janeiro for almost a year, working on a, on a large client. And I just really enjoyed trying to figure out what was going on with clients uh, for which they brought in consultants. Because often the brief that you're given is not really what the problem is going on. They think, well, we need to bring in a consultant to do something, to look at something. But the problem is a little bit bigger. 
And uh, BCG uh, in particular, and Bain, which really was an offshoot of, uh, of BCG, uh, both had the attitude, we will hire um, smart young people. We're not looking for gray-haired people who have experience in banking or in life insurance or any of those other things. We want to bring in people that will go get the data and figure things out and have fun doing it and bring insights to their clients. And so because I knew nothing, <laughs> you know, I'd been in the Navy for five years and I was an English major and I had an MBA. I didn't know anything. So I really, uh, I really fell into that approach really enjoyed it and uh, and discovered throughout all the different clients that I had at BCG that there was always something bigger that you could find out that would bring insights to the client about what the real problem was they needed solving. Um, I was very tired after my year in Brazil. Um, we had to work in Portuguese and I didn't speak Portuguese, but I had to learn it in two months, like all of us on the case. That is so hard. We were, we were, yeah, we were somewhat misled about uh, how many people in our clients spoke English. Uh, the top 12 directors of our clients spoke English and no one else did. So since we were getting data out of computer systems, we had to talk to the IT people. It was before PCs or Macs. And uh, we had to negotiate, you know, getting computer time to run our analyses. That all had to be done in Portuguese. I was really tired. So I left Boston Consulting. I took a job as a dean at one of the graduate schools at Harvard, and I did that for a few years. And then I got itchy, and um, Bain & Company was uh, up and coming. I knew the people there, and so I joined them in Boston and worked uh, for three years in Boston before they asked me if I would move to London, where we had only 30 people, and lead a big study. And I enjoyed it, and I stayed in uh, uh, London for a couple of years. Then they moved me to Germany to run the office, a new office. And after two years there, I started a French office uh, with a big client, and then later on came back to run the UK. Um, which had by that time about 300 consultants. They went from 30 to 300 in a in a very short period of time. But I really wanted to be a consultant. I didn't want to, you know, I didn't have a lot of fun administering 300 other consultants and a and a staff of whatever it was, 100 to 200 people. That's not uh, why you went into consulting. Yeah. So, well, I left and started my own firm in in 1990. And in 1992, I got a call from Martin Sorrell, uh, who said he wanted to introduce me to the head of Ogilvy and, um, in London. And that was done. And uh, at the time, in 1992, I was told, we've been bought by WPP. We're not making enough money. We've done everything that we can to figure out how to become more profitable. Nothing seems to work. We think we need a strategy consultant to look at our organization and what's going on. To me, it was just another client. Um, although, admittedly, I knew probably less about the advertising industry than I might have known about chemical manufacturing or glass making or automotive, you know, assembly and other things that I had done at BCG and Bain. 
So I said, sure, Let, uh, let's, why don't we go about it this way? I will pretend that you are a factory that makes ads and that I will analyze you in the same way that I would analyze a factory. How does that sound? <laughs> and Mike Walsh, who is a, a lovely and very effective executive said, listen, that's a great idea. I wouldn't, can't imagine anybody in this industry ever proposing anything like that. But don't use the word factory around our creatives. It might not make a very good impression. And that's how I got started in the advertising industry, uh, trying to look for the kind of data that said, how many ads do we make? How much work is that for each client? How much do we get paid? And how many people does that take? And uh, somewhat to my astonishment, I discovered that they did not keep track or document or measure the work that they did for their clients. You know, once the work was done, it was out the door, onto the net, and they didn't really have systems that kept track of that in the same way that a manufacturing operation would keep track of past reproductions and how many models of car we produced and what it cost. And I thought, I don't know how this is gonna go for me because the only way I know how to do the work is with that data. And so uh, I had a team of four people and we spent seven weeks, I think, or eight weeks developing a system for figuring out how much work they had done in the past year and how to measure it and how many people it should take to do that work. And I have to say that first client, which had uh, none of the data that we needed, gave me the foundation that has created a strategy consulting firm for ad agencies for 30 years. I mean, it was the stuff that we needed then. It turns out I've needed for 30 years to do any work in the industry. So, uh, you know, was there a plan for any of this? No, not none whatsoever. It's just I followed my head and my heart and uh, took the paths that were offered to me. And uh, uh, that has been my career for now a very long time. And I think also it's a testament to how talented and hardworking person you are, because the opportunities like that don't are not offered to everyone. And the fact that they were offered just testament to the person that you are. Michael, and I wonder when you started your own firm, what do you know now that you didn't know then that you wish you knew? Well, um, I didn't realize at the time that consulting was becoming a brand name business. You know, uh, when you think about the, the consulting business, BCG started, I think, in 1963. Uh, Bain & Company, the people that started it, Bill Bain and, uh, and a number of others, were at BCG. Uh, in the, in the latter period, and they left in 1973. And McKinsey was the big, you know, the, the big consulting firm that had started in 1925. But it turned out that there were a series of things going on beginning in 1970 that uh, favored the consulting firms growing like crazy, working on strategic issues, because you know, Wall Street was now engaged in hostile takeovers, 
companies were growing through acquisition. The job of the chief executive was becoming very complicated, and many of them were really over their head in trying to say, how do we run 99 businesses? It was a perfect time for strategy consulting. And, you know, I, that's where I learned my business. But uh, what I didn't realize in 1990 was this is becoming a brand name business where consulting firms have global operations, global people, big cultures, um, and it costs a lot of money to run that. So uh, I thought I could compete in a, in a minor way with Bain and McKinsey and BCG and, and many others. Uh, but it turned out that inevitably I would have a boutique firm and I, and I couldn't do the big boy stuff. Um, again, I was lucky in that advertising for me came along two years after I got started because that did not require big brand consulting. Um, they can't afford it. The agencies can't afford it. And the big uh, consulting firms would never have had the patience, I think, to to do what I had to do uh, to develop some expertise in their operations. So it favored me as a boutique firm. And fortunately, I was in the right industry. But if I had tried to continue down the path of doing what I had done at Bain or at BCG, I would have failed for sure. I didn't know that at the time, but I was just lucky. I think you were more than lucky. You said something very kind about me, about my capabilities and all that. What I want to communicate, uh, Chris, is that I was mostly scared <laughs> most of the time that I would fail or I would do a bad job or I wouldn't understand my clients and I would give bad recommendations or I wouldn't be able to figure things out at all. So listen, there's luck, there's skill, and there's fear. And uh, those things are in, you know, certain proportion. But I definitely was scared a lot of the time, I must say. And that fear is actually very common for high performers. That's what makes well, them Yes, I think, you know, I think that uh, if for whatever reason you, uh, you want to do a perfect job, you know, and that probably started when I was five years old <laughs> at home, if you want to do a perfect job, uh, you're going to be afraid a lot of the time because the world uh, is not structured uh, to let people uh, do perfect work. Not at all. I mean, it's uh, the world is a really messy place. Data are messy. People have different opinions about things. It's very hard to find a path. And if you're a bit of a perfectionist and an analyst, you're going to have to work very hard to 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 get the right data. In addition. You know, it's very easy to go down the wrong path if you have a, a hypothesis that is not correct and gather the wrong data and come to different conclusions. Uh, that's another thing that goes on. So you have to assure yourself that uh, what you are doing matches a good hypothesis, you know. Very true. Michael, and you're a rare person that worked for McKinsey, BCG and Bain. How would you compare experience working for each firm? Oh, that was, well, then the McKinsey thing uh, was a summer job. And um, McKinsey was a relatively small operation. I worked in their Los Angeles office in um, 1971, uh, summer of 71. They had to only 20 people, only 20 people. I don't know how big their LA operation is today. 
but um and then when I worked with Bain, it was or BCG, it was only a, a couple hundred people. And when I left and joined Bain, it was only a couple hundred people. Uh, so, uh, but their cultures were quite different. Um, McKinsey was sort of old school experience, white hair, um, industry experience. You know, they were looking for very solid, acceptable uh, individuals. I remember in the Los Angeles offices, there were two crazy requirements if you joined them full time. Number one, you had to join the Orange County Republican Party Club. You had to be an Orange County uh, right-wing Republican. This is 1971, you know, 50 years ago. Uh, long before the Republican Party as it is today. And the second thing you had to do is wear a white shirt, only a white shirt and a tie. And they had just abandoned wearing the kind of hats that Clark Kent wears in movies, uh, in Superman movies. They had just abandoned that. So they were very conservative, very middle of the road, very middle class, smart and nice people who dressed expensively, charged a lot of money, but I would say not a terribly analytical firm. Now, BCG was exactly the opposite because when I was at uh, Harvard Business School, they used to run ads in the Harbus, which was the local newspaper for the campus. And their ads would say, are you good enough to join us? <laughs> we only hire the best and the smartest. And I'm making up these numbers. 87% of our young people have PhDs. Uh, three quarters have already written books uh, um, and so forth and so on. They, Bruce Henderson, who ran the firm then, who founded it and ran it, he was just looking for really bright bomb throwers. You know what I mean? The kind of people that would didn't give a damn what was going on at the client, wanted to find things that were insightful and strategic and shove it in the client's face. <laughs> and by the way, that was the culture uh, at that time. Now, I love BCG today. It's become a completely different place. But I have to say, in the, you know, its first decade, it had people who generally thought their clients were stupid and that they were smarter. And they didn't care how how angry they made their client because they weren't looking for the next next piece of work. All BCG wanted to do in uh, in those early days was to do a piece of strategy work and then leave. Now that was exactly why Bill Bain set up uh, set up Bain and Company because as he said to me and he told many other people he said, "Can you believe it?" That at BCG, uh, by the time you get to know the client and you get to know the data and you get to know the interest, you drop a report on their desk and walk away. How crazy is that? Because you have created the conditions for intimacy, for helping them change, but you have to have a different head. You have to have a different attitude. And so his whole thing was, 
we shouldn't be in the strategy consulting game for one shot at each client. We should be in it for the long term. We should be in it for 10-year relationships. And that means that we have to do not only strategy, but we have to help them in implementation. That means that we have to sit on task forces. That means that we have to put in a lot of time doing the kind of stuff that makes consultants normally pretty uncomfortable. And Bill really, really understood that, uh, at least during that period of BCG's history, um, that they were, too, they were, you know, they were in it for the fame and glory of one-shot studies. And Bill was in it for the confidential work for clients for a 10-year period in order to make a difference. And here was the other thing. Uh, at BCG, we would we would take a study that anybody commissioned. It could be a CEO, a head of strategic planning, the head of a business, the head of marketing. It didn't really matter. A head of a brand. At Bain, uh, Bill's policy was uh, we will only work for clients um, if they are the chief executive. And we have to have a three-hour private meeting with them before we will even do any work. Uh, and we will only work if we are given the most important businesses to work on, uh, and if they agree that this is a relationship for life, as long as we value, uh, as long as we are doing valued work, you can't imagine a difference between the two firms. And then there was, you know, in the background, there was McKinsey in their blue stripe suits you know, carrying out industry studies for anybody in an industry. I mean, you know, McKinsey worked for every bank, every insurance company, every automotive company. At Bain, we would only work for one company in an industry because we wanted to kill the competitors. So those three firms, uh, you know, happened is they've, they've all converged. They are all involved in long-term relationships. They, they are all very analytical. Uh, they all hire the same kind of people. Uh, it's been interesting to see that happen. So that I think, you know, an individual coming out of business school could work for any one of those firms and be quite happy. Uh, that would not have been the case, uh, you know, 50 years ago. Michael, thank you for sharing this. This is so interesting to learn. Thank you. What advice would you give to somebody who is currently working for one of them? one of the major firms and they want to start their own consulting firm. What are some of the key things they need to have in place in terms of skills or anything for that firm not to fail? Well, I think, uh, gee, let's first start. There's so many aspects of their financial aspects and client aspects, but I, I think the, the most important thing is you really have to have a concept of who you are and what you know and what kind of problems are out there that can be solved? So I, I think that you have to have a concept about yourself and what your problem-solving expertise is. It could be in an industry. It could be in a technology. You know, if it were if it were today, uh, someone might say, you know something, I see huge opportunities in artificial intelligence. I think it's going to shake up the world. Um and I think it needs, I think it has very destructive possibilities. I think it has very constructive possibilities. I would like to be in the business of helping clients use it for the betterment of their operations and their own, you know, 
operate their own financial and uh, operations and their culture. You have to have a concept of what you're doing. And it really helps if you've got a client that you can go to who pays the first bills. Um, I left I left Bain & Company uh, at a time when I knew three chief executives very well who were not clients, but I knew them, you know, because of my life in London. And uh, one of them became a very important client for me at the time so that there was uh, no misstep of, as far as my finances were concerned. I could leave Bain. I left, you know, it was a friendly departure. I was the head of the office. I left to do smaller consulting things and I had a client that didn't compete with them. So that was fine. Um, sometimes, uh, uh, you know, you have a lot of prestige if you work for Bain McKinsey or BCG and you're carrying that business card today. When you step out in your farmer and company or, uh, you know, something else, it, it's another thing to leave the prestige of the firm and join, you know, Chris's consulting firm or, you know, Michael's consulting firm. And it was a big blow for me because I used to get invited to Henley and uh, to a lot of other things. I had lunch with Margaret Thatcher, you know, the, you know, the prime minister of England when I was heading the Bain office. Um, that kind of thing doesn't happen when you're farmer and co. All of a sudden, you're nobody with a new set of business cards, an idea, very little income, and maybe a couple of employees that you hope you can afford for the next several months. So you have to believe in yourself. You have to believe there's an opportunity for you and that you're going to be good at it. And however tough it is in the beginning and how tough it might be for your spouse or your partner um, and your family that, that you can do it. And you have to have a very good reason for leaving in the first place. Michael, so let's now speak about how you started writing books. Could you tell us how you wrote your first book? Yes. Uh, I think, uh, Chris, I I harbored a secret desire to be a writer uh, from the time I was in high school, but I never wrote anything. And by never. the way, I must say that you are a very, very good writer. Terrific oh, writer. Well, thank, thank you for that. Um, I always, and bear in mind that I started in consulting before PCs, before Macs. Um, there were fax machines. And a lot of the communication with clients, there were no email, there were no phones, nothing like that. So a lot of uh, the communication with clients was written reports or memos or what have you that I always like to write up proposals. I like to write weekly status reports. I like to write final reports. Uh, I got a great joy out of that, but I never thought it would lead to writing a book. It was just a discipline that I had. I wrote Madison, Madison Avenue Manslaughter not knowing how to write a book. I spent uh, about six years, mostly of wasted time, um, trying to write because I have friends who are writers and they told me, Look, Michael, what you do is just sit down and write. And the the real writing of a book is the rewriting of a book. So just you can always fix it afterwards. And I wrote um, two drafts of Madison Avenue Manslaughter, and I thought they were terrible. I was so depressed 
that I went and hired a ghostwriter, paid for by myself, spent a long time briefing him, and had him write the third draft, which was even worse than mine. And I finally ended up with uh, uh, an understanding that the book was either ne never going to get written uh, or it had to be written correctly. But my friend, the ghostwriter, who writes a book every five months, uh, is quite expert. And I said to him, his name is Bob Whittington. He's based in the UK. Wonderful guy, a very prolific and skilled writer, but he just didn't do the work that I needed on this book. Anyway, I said, Bob, how do you write a book? He said, it's easy. Uh, first of all, it's 50,000 words. Secondly, it's going to be 20 chapters. So every chapter is going to be 2,500 words. And in every chapter is going to be are going to be five ideas. So they're going to be five ideas with 500 words each. Well, all you have to do to write a book is, first of all, write 20 chapter headings. Just the title of the chapter. You'll change them later. Don't worry about it. And then the first two chapters, you actually outline the five ideas in each one, and then you get started. And try to write in, uh, 500 words a day so that, in effect, you're writing one chapter every week in draft form. And that was a miracle formula for me because all of a sudden I realized that what I hadn't done uh, in the many years before that was to actually outline the book properly. I tried to outline the whole thing. I then tried to just write and it didn't work. So I found out that uh, writing a chapter at a time, 500 words a day really worked. And I finished the book in, you know, I finished it in less than a year and uh, it had very little editing. Uh, when I came to Madison Avenue Makeover, my latest book, it was a very different type of book because I was a fly on the wall in a tracking an agency's transformation. I was sitting in on management meetings, recording meetings, interviewing people, and then I was having to take a whole body of work uh, from recorded transcripts and boiling it down. But I did follow the same basic uh, uh, idea and structure, even though it didn't end up being 20 chapters, nor did Madison Avenue Manslaughter, which has 15 or 16. Anyway, I wrote the first book because I was so frustrated uh, with the industry. Um, I felt that I had been working for 25 years, 20 to 25 years and in the industry. I hadn't made a lot of impact in the way people were dealing with their scopes of work. And I thought, I need a broader platform. I need a book. And so I took the burning desire to write a book, and I ended up taking Bob Whittington's formula and then using using it to write the book. And then I illustrated it with New Yorker cartoons, which really helped, uh, made it more fun. And that was it. And you know, once you've done one book, you have the confidence that you can do a second one, and it doesn't feel so scary at all. Um, a lot of people want to people, a lot of people want to write books. Um, there is a, uh, yeah, I was also fueled by, um, a book by a woman who wrote it called Julia Cameron, uh, called The Artist's Way. And Julia, um, has written this bestseller, The, the Artist's Way, which 
speaks to people that have a sort of a creative urge, but just can't get started. And she said, you know, it's because you're inhibiting yourself. Um, in the artist's way, she recommends a number of exercises that you do to unbottle yourself. And one of them is to write what she calls morning pages. You get up in the morning, you get a cup of coffee, you open up a notebook, you write three pages of anything, but it must be three pages. And when you're done with three pages, you never look at it again and you do it every day. And you write whatever is on your mind. It's you know a little bit like a journal, but it doesn't have to be a diary. And I now have done, uh, I'm gonna look, uh, I am working on my 14th volume of morning notes. Uh, each volume has about 380 pages. Uh, I count it as over a million words of um, stuff that keeps me unbottled. So I do that every morning uh, before I start my 500 words a day writing. That's how I that's how I do it. And I think, you know, as I'm getting older, that really what I want to do in life is enough consulting to keep the keep life interesting and uh, always be working on a writing project of one type or another. So let's talk a little bit about your new book. It has such an interesting origin story because you you were at the beach club and then you got a call from Matt Baxter, uh, who was a new CEO of Huge, and that agency. And then you started this incredible project for 13 months. What were some <laughs> things... No, go ahead, please. Well, I wanted to ask you, what were some things that really surprised you as you went through that project? Well, I, it was, and I, to, even today now, you know, um, long after we kicked this off, I was so surprised that this came out of the blue. I didn't know, I had never met Matt directly. I had emailed back and forth with him. Uh, he had introduced me to... Um, one of his executives at an at uh, initiative, um, and I was I had done consulting there for a while, um, and then when he moved over to Huge, I sent him a simple note of congratulation and heard back from him. But then to get a phone call, you know, in July in the middle of COVID on a Friday late in the day, four thirty five o'clock, when I was at the beach, saying. I've got a writing project for you if you're interested. And I thought maybe he was talking about a speech. I did. I had no idea. And uh, no, he was really talking about a book. And the astonishing thing was that he was one month into his job. He was a media executive having taken over a creative agency for the first time. It was in the middle of COVID and he had hardly spent any face-to-face -face time with anybody because of the isolation. And he, it was a global operation. So what I found astonishing is that he was willing to hire someone or give them, I won't say hire, he was willing to give someone the opportunity to write a completely independent book when he didn't have a plan as yet. His plan was, I'm going to transform this agency uh, in many respects, along some of the lines that you've outlined in Madison Avenue manslaughter. Um, but Huge is not a typical creative agency, so he couldn't follow my blueprint at all. Uh, so even looking back on it, I say, I'm not sure why Matt wanted this book. 
he this is not a vanity project for him because he told me, I want you to write about the good, the bad, and the ugly. And when he saw uh, an early version of the book, there were lots of things he wanted me to take out that he felt were too flattering about his leadership style. And he said, this is really about what my organization has achieved, not me. So it wasn't a vanity project either. I, you know, I know Matt quite well now after, you know, a couple of years, and I still think I don't know the man entirely. Uh, he's a risk taker. Uh, he's very smart. He's very insightful. And I think he's a visionary. Um, and he he had a, an inarticulated vision of what he was going to do at Huge. He knew it was going to be a major transformation. And he knew that Huge was small enough that he could get away with it within the holding company. So uh, I was surprised at the huge amount of it freedom that I had to do whatever I wanted. There was never a roadblock. I interviewed all the executives. I interviewed founder, one of the founders. I talked to uh, Matt's old colleagues back in Australia uh, with his knowledge, of course, but without him editing it. Oh, do you mean from Naked? From the previous company? Oh, yes, from Naked. And yes, no, definitely. Um, yeah, it's in the book. There are a couple of, uh, yeah, and they didn't always say flattering things. They always said, oh, Matt was crazy. Mm. <laughs> Matt did crazy stuff. And we argued all the time. You know, I mean, Matt is, you know, Matt, Matt doesn't hold a grudge and he doesn't mind a good argument. And, you know, and he can be pretty, pretty tough in those arguments. I never had them with him because that wasn't the nature of my work. But apparently executives that he worked with back in the old days when he was 20, 25, 30 years old, found him to be a pretty tough, pretty tough cookie. Mm. Yeah, he, he had me interview those people. I was surprised at the amount of freedom I had that I was able to record every single conversation and turn them into transcripts. And I have a giant folder here called Matt Baxter Interviews that's about 500 pages of transcripts, um, which I've been able to turn into PDFs and search, make a searchable database out of. So, you know, the, the information is pretty accessible. Um, and then I was surprised how easily the 18 months of work created a structure for the book. It was not hard to structure the book. It was, here's how it got started. Here is Huge's situation. You know, what has happened over the years since it was founded in 1999. Uh, here's what, uh, who, here's who Matt Baxter is. Here's where he came from. Here's what he did in media for 20 years. Here's how he got started at Huge, interviewing groups of executives via Zoom, but not getting an awful lot of information, looking at the financials for 12 offices, but not getting a lot of information, and then deciding he had one clear strategy. Our work is going to be done for the benefit of clients, uh, not for the benefit of us. We are going to help clients grow. That's what he knew starting the transformation. And then he met with his 20 executives uh, at a first retreat in October 
2021 that I attended for three days, in which they hammered out what it meant to provide accelerated growth for clients. And that he got out of the way. From that point on, he was working with a consulting firm that he hired, and that was pure serendipity. He found them. It's called the Business Consulting Group. They have a very clear way of thinking about transformations. Matt adopted their template because it matched what he thought was right. And um, so, you know, it was, here's Hugh's situation. Here's Matt Baxter. Uh, here's the first retreat. Here's who the business model company is. Here is their template for productization, the creation of fixed price products. Mm -hmm or uh, organization and, and all the other stuff. The book organization just fell out of um, the subjects that I interviewed for. And so that part wasn't very hard and I was able to do the writing of the book in four months. Um, I, I turned in the first manuscript in November uh, of last year. And from November to you know recently, we've just been tweaking it and editorializing and making sure the quotes are accurate and the rest. But it was it was not hard to do. And people were wonderful to work with. They spoke openly. And so I just had all this terrific data and perspectives. And the book just almost wrote itself, you know. I think that it's very possible that one of the reasons Matt did this was because when someone is observing you and here with that book, the entire world will be watching. It makes you get extra energy to do what needs to be done. And then also your team gets extra energy to do what needs to be done. He knew it would be a very hard thing to do. Well, yes. And, you know, I think the transformation, when you, when you read the book and you see what he had to do, I mean, first of all, he had to meet with a group of 20 executives, most of whom he didn't know. Most of whom worked under old huge, a different, a completely different way of working and not working successfully as far as uh, IPG was concerned anyway. And then he brought in some new people and they had to integrate with that management team. Uh, and they had to start with a new mission. But from that point on, Boy, I'll tell you, the work was hard. And I think the hardest thing they did was to say, we're not going to be in the business of selling headcounts to clients for a fee, which is what agencies do. We're going to be in the business of helping them grow by creating a suite of products that are sold at a fixed price that address the, the problems that they have growing. And so, uh, you know, they have really three different business lines. Uh, they call it experience transformation, which means making all of our systems work better for the benefit of customers and users, the web in particular. So the web can be more effective. That's called experience transformation. A good experience for customers, a good experience for uh, our own employees, smooth like Amazon is smooth, if you know what I mean. But there probably isn't a better example in the world of a company that makes it easy to part with your money uh, and get the products very quickly. Um, so experience transformation, 
technology realization, which is we've bought all these systems over time and none of them speak with one another and we have to use Excel you know, to get any useful information. How do we make our systems sing to one another? That's another capability. And the third one is just called growth creation, where if we don't have enough ideas for growth, we will create them. And Matt and his management team and TBMC, the consulting firm, uh, set about to create 45 brand new products that address those three uh, doors, as they called them. The, the customers will come through three different doors to huge, and each door will have 15 fixed price products that we will sell to them to address their performance problems. Now, the the tough thing is clients don't usually discuss performance problems with agencies. They tell agencies what work they want it to have done, and they negotiate the price. But they don't say, uh, we have a problem, you know, we're not growing for the following reasons, or that's our hypothesis. They rarely develop the right kind of analyses to figure that out. Uh, Huge was going to have to get into the business of diagnosing problems, negotiating and agreeing with the clients, selling the products that will that will fix those. And then, of course, having invented the products in the first place making sure that the products actually work. What a massive job that was. And they did that within a within a year of getting started. And then on top of it, uh, the, the uh, an even equally complicated thing is HUGE was a federation of 12 independent offices around the world run by 12 different people that had run the business 12 different ways. And Matt decided, I'm not going to do 12 transformations. I'm going to do one. And that means that I'm going to take 12 independent businesses and I'm going to turn them into one global business we're going to run globally. And that meant that in a way, he was sort of demoting the office heads to a different role. He was telling the people in the offices, you're now part of a global pool of talent and you will be allocated. And this is at a time when there's COVID going on and great uncertainty about the prospects for the advertising industry. So, you know, it's sort of layering risk on top of risk on top of complexity, in addition to saying, and you're gonna be selling fixed price products that we've never used before. What a a massive transformation job and what incredible risk they faced if they dared to think about it, but they had such a belief that this was the right thing to do you know, to work for clients on their most pressing issues, to have products that would solve it, and to be able to organize resources on a global basis to satisfy their needs. They just were compelled by that logic, and it pushed them through any feeling of risk. Now, we did have one management retreat uh, in October of the second year, that's 2022, in which with most of the heavy work done, they had to actually think, oh my God, what have we done here? (laughs) Is this going to work? And there was, you know, three days of discussing with people venting uh, their concerns, which I outlined in the book. And, And in some cases, it seemed a little negative, but I was, you know, writing about the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I thought, I can't write a book without getting to the point where man is 
yikes, what have we done? <laughs> Is this going to work? We've put in all this hard work for a year to 18 months. And that's where Huge is today. And they've had some notable successes. Um, they have some new clients that have bought the systems. Uh, bigger budgets than they've ever seen in their life. And they sold them first time through. So, you know, it seems to be working. Um, I, I just can't tell you how thrilled I am to have been involved in this and to have been able to document it and to write about it. And now to sit on the sidelines and to watch it unfold. What do you think were Matt's biggest lessons as he went through this process? Well, uh, you know, Matt has a complicated, he had a complicated job. Um, he had to assure that the transformation project plan was on track, uh, being managed by the chief operating officer, Mark Manning, very, very competent uh, COO. Um, he had to make sure that that was on track. Um, uh, second thing he had to do was decide how much he could communicate to the organization at large. The transformation worked way ahead of communications to the employees of HUGE. But every month or so, uh, Matt was committed to having what they call an all-hands meeting by Zoom. The whole, the whole whole 1500 employees which they would talk about various issues now you know he had to decide how much do we reveal how much do we talk about the productization certainly how much do we talk about reorganization um people are already anxious new ceo fourth fifth one in four years um covid uh remote working um, the head of creative uh, left after the first retreat. So, and creative was over 300 people. So there was a lot of uncertainty. And that was to communicate with the uh, client at large, or I should say the agency at large, uh, was a fraughtful, I'd say. They had a lot of decisions to make about what to say and how to say it and how to illustrate it. And then let's not forget that he is running a business for IPG. And when you are an agency working for a holding company, you have to deliver your numbers. Uh, you have to deliver sales growth. You have to deliver profitability. Um, and your bonuses and the bonuses for everyone are based on that performance. Well, um, the years that Matt was on board, he had to deliver numbers in 2021, six months after he joined. And he had to deliver full year 2022. And uh, he wasn't running an ordinary organization. He was running a hybrid organization that had a transformation going on, which was a massive distraction, and a business that was going on in the face of uh, COVID and economic uncertainty. So he had a lot on his plate, you know, uh, more than he would share with me, but he always seemed to be upbeat, optimistic, cheerful, positive, and absolutely believing in the wisdom of the project that they were engaged in. And as far as what I was doing, I guess he trusted me because he never asked any questions of, about how's it coming and uh, is there anything you can show me? I mean, that wasn't the nature of our relationship. 
I felt more an obligation to tell him, uh, you know, what I was doing, uh, not what I was finding, but where I was in the project and when I could start writing and when I was going to finish. I think he wanted to know that I was going to meet my deadlines uh, by the end of last year. So, you know, he, he, he he's a young guy. He's 45 years old, born in 1978. This is his first creative agency, and he's done something that I have not seen done in my 30 years of consulting to the industry. So imagine how unique it is. I just honestly hope, uh, Chris, that my book is up to the quality of what I observed, you know, and you never know that. I don't I don't know if I've fully captured the complexity of the transformation and uh, uh, of the and of the kind of leadership that this required, not only by Matt but by the management team. So I just hope the book is up to it because I have such a huge respect for the job they did. I think the book is very well written. I think you did an incredible job with this book. I don't know. I have distributed uh, only a few copies to the management, and I haven't heard anything back yet. So. And that, of course, has read it. So I think that in the next month, uh, who knows what I'm going to hear like. I, I thought you were writing about our transformation. This is completely different. No, no. I think I did an accurate job as far as I could see it. But who knows what it looks like from the inside out. Uh, there's still going to be some interesting learnings for me about uh, about writing a book, you know? I think it is very well written. And I think also I used to be very critical to my books, but then I realized that every work I create is imperfectly perfect. I'm never going to make it perfect. I find errors in all kinds of major publications and major books. And so I think that as long as I know that I did everything I could to make it great, that's that's good enough for me. Well, you you made it like, I think this is what we share here. You. Uh, no book can be perfect because who defines perfection? Um, and as a writer, you define perfection. You know you fall short, but you come as close as you can to that goal. But that may be only 25% of perfection if you're a person who's mentioned in the book uh, or who's interviewed in the book and, you know, you've cut out 75% of what they told you, you know, that sort of thing. So... I, I am waiting with bated breath to see what um, what the the people at Huge think about the book and whether they feel like it's an accurate view. And then, of course, you always hope that there's you know a commercial market for the book. But I do feel good at this point. I I don't know what I would do differently. There's one chapter I might have written a little differently, but uh, you know it is what it is. I you know there's one chapter I could have gone a lot further and been more analytical but i decided not to at the time and you can always have revised editions down well that's true that's true and listen uh ai was not even mentioned in the book and just think i mean you know a second edition would have to say um what about ai because we have an entire advertising industry that sells heads, sells the time of people 
to clients and a big part of the kind of work those people do is going to be done by AI. I think 30% at least of the work being done by creative agencies today can be done by AI. And that means 30% less income, which they cannot afford. Now, huge is not selling heads anymore. Huge is selling products. If huge could operate with those products with zero people, they would. <laughs> no, I mean, really, uh, they could. They would still make money. Uh, but that's not true for the rest of the industry. So the funny thing is, AI has come in and it is going to accelerate the need for transformation for the way agencies make their money. And it's going to make Matt look very smart to have done this before AI came in, because I know uh, and I've been told that Huge is making a major investment in an AI capability because it is not going to threaten their business model whatsoever. If anything, it'll improve their business model. So, um, you know, a, a second edition of Madison Avenue Makeover would certainly talk about um, whatever Huge does with AI, uh, where they came out with some of their new clients, and how the rest of the industry responded to Huge's initiative, if at all, and how the holding companies dealt with it. Because even Interpublic Group, which owns Huge and has been very supportive of it, uh, probably holds its breath when it's asked, is McCann going to do the same thing? Because McCann is multiply, you know, multiple times the size of Huge. Or is FCB going to do it? Or not, and is Philippe Krakowski, as the CEO of Interpublic, going to take some of the lessons from Huge and apply it to the rest of his portfolio, or, or is, is he going to say we're the kind of holding company where every agency can do what it wants to do as long as they deliver their numbers? So all of those are uncertainties. Certainly, a second edition, uh, which could certainly could be done, I would say in 2025. Um, is a possibility. We'll know a lot in 2025, I'm sure. Very true. Very true. Michael, this is a great place to end this session. Before we do that, is there anything else you want to share? Maybe some question you wanted me to ask, I didn't ask. And then where can listeners find you, where they can get the book? Oh, fine. Well, gee, you've done a great job uh, organizing. I knew a little bit about what you were going to ask me, and I've, and you've given me the opportunity to talk at great length, uh, Chris. So uh, I appreciate it. It's, uh, it's rare to have, to feel comfortable uh, in, a, in a session like this uh, with an interviewer and be able to just keep talking. <laughs> I'm sorry if I talk too much. No, uh, I can listen but, to you all day. Oh, okay, fine. Well, um, and the book is, uh, it's already uh, listed on Amazon. Um, for uh, publication in June, uh, June or July. I'm not sure in the States. It comes out earlier in the UK than it does here. And uh, I'm always available uh, at Farmer and Company uh, LLC. Uh, the website is www.farmerandco.com. And, -E and, and my email is mfarmer at farmerandco.com. 
always happy to, you know, hear from readers. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I do a Substack uh, article under uh, the heading C-Suite Blues, as if it were, uh, <laughs> as if they were musicians. And um, and I love to communicate with people. So I'd love to hear what people think about the book. I will be at Con uh, week after next, handing out copies of the book there uh, to various people. And then we will have uh, probably a formal book launch in July uh, in New York. And maybe we'll continue to do that in other cities through the rest of uh, 2023. So, but otherwise, you did a great job setting this up and and uh, letting me feel as comfortable as I feel here right now with you, Chris. Thank you, Michael. It was such a pleasure speaking with you. I did not feel that your answers were alone at all. I think they were just perfect, and you shared so much, so much wisdom. I really appreciate it. Thank you for all the work you are doing. I, I wish we could have more time to speak because I can feel there's so many things we can discuss. But thank you for making this time. Congratulations on the book. I really enjoyed reading it. I, I recommend for everyone listening to check it out. It's a really good book. It's called Madison Avenue Makeover. And I'm looking forward to see you all guys in the next session. Bye, everyone. Well, thank you, Chris. Bye-bye, everyone. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.